But I want to end this series so we can start a series journeying toward the cross, the death, the resurrection, and triumph of King Jesus. So there's more we can say about our series, Your Welcome, Radical Visions of Kingdom Hospitality that Jesus embodied and invited us to participate in. But we'll let this be our last one to be continued someday. The story we're going to look at in Luke's gospel is probably one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible. So I'm going to do my best to calmly <laughs> and collectively share my, one of my favorite stories in the gospel. Because I don't want you to get swirled and caught up just in my emotion. I want the text, I want, I want Jesus to reach out and seize your heart from this story. And Jesus does not need my help to do that. He is the most compelling, loving, gracious person. And so it's my aim and desire that just by reading the scripture and making a few comments that the reality of Jesus would be exposed to your life and you'd realize that there really is no barrier any longer between you and him. It's been defeated and my prayer is our response would be we would just get to the feet of Jesus. And every barrier and obstacle that your mind might think right now between you and God, whatever it is, oh, this is keeping me back or this is holding me at arm's distance or this keeps me away from being his son or daughter. I want you to know that those barriers that you erect in your mind, they are not barriers to the Lord Jesus. He has overcome every barrier to reach your life, to transform your life and then to give you a new path and a new identity and a new journey forward. And so I want you to keep, that's the thesis for the message today, is that there is no longer a barrier that we could erect that is taller or stronger or more fortified than the unrelenting grace and love of Jesus. There is nothing. And this story is one of those stories that just illustrates that with living color. So if you would... One more time, could you stand with me just out of honor of God's word, the scriptures? We believe these scriptures, as believers, possess all that we ever would need to learn and receive and perceive and to be transformed from the inside out for everything, for life, for godliness, for salvation, for past, present, and future. The scriptures inform us as believers of Jesus Christ, they are an invitation to participate in the life of God as we see it in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it might be said, this may be one of the most radical things we could do in the world to stand under this and to say, let it be so, Jesus. That's the scriptures. We don't worship the scriptures, we worship the one to whom they all point. Amen? Amen? Are we good? 
I want to read this story. It's in Luke chapter 7. If you have an app, I don't think you're looking at the score because this is the worst time of year. There's no, well, March Madness, I forgot, is my favorite time of year. I'm a college basketball fan. KU Jayhawks, I'm born and raised in Kansas. Let's have a moment of silence. Big 12 outright champions or shared champions for 13 years in a row. I don't remember the last time they've been bad. Praise the Lord. It's the one good thing besides barbecue out of Kansas. I'm sure there's more. I'll think about it. Let's turn our hearts to God's word. Please engage your mind. Engage your imagination. There are some things that God did not want us to grow out of, and that one of them is our imagination, engaging it in the scripture. I want you to know, you don't have to check that thing at the door. He wants you to see pictures. He wants you to see color. He wants you to see contrast. He wants you to see the narrative unfold. He wants you to see conflict between characters. More than anything, he wants you to see him. This is just the scripture. That's about what we're about ready to do. Starting with verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. So just pause. Oh. This sounds like a really prim and proper worship service, doesn't it? Do you see? Do you, I just want you to pause. Do you see what's happening? When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed a money Money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them, say that with me, neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, 
her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Leave your Bibles open. Grab a, grab a notepad. Grab a pen. What stood out to you about the story? Don't give me a sermon. Give me a one-liner. Come on. This is participation time. What's that? Humility. Humility grace. What else? Forgiveness. Hmm. She gave all she had. Beautiful. What else? Love. Messy. Uh-oh. We might go there. Sacrifice. Acceptance. Tears. Judgment. Vulnerability. Man, you all just preached the sermon. I got 12 points and those were them. Did anyone else enjoy the story as much as I did? Well, let's just go through it. And please, if the Holy Spirit inspires something in your heart, write it down so you can treasure it like Mary. And you can reflect upon it throughout the week. One of the things we have to understand about what Luke is doing. Luke is the gospel writer, one of the gospels, as he has since around chapter five of his gospel, continued to tell the story of Jesus around tables. There are three the Son of Man came phrases in the New Testament. The Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And then if you look two verses before our text, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. The spirit in which he came, humble service. The purpose for which he came, to save the lost. The way he would go about it, eating and drinking. You got to see that. That's just brilliant. No one would think of that. And so Luke especially highlights these encounters that Jesus has around the dinner table. I just want you to pause right here at the beginning. How many of you have a dinner table or something that resembles it? You might be more on the path toward becoming like Christ than you think. Here, Jesus is with the Pharisees. Before, it's been the Pharisees who have been 
angry at Jesus for being at the wrong table, but now that he's at their table, they, they think everything's hunky-dory. It's from the Greek. And right here at the beginning, I want you to notice something. The Pharisees have constantly, constantly, constantly busted Jesus' chops for being at the table with a sinner. The implication here is the Pharisees don't think they're sinners, and that's why they don't think it's a big deal that Jesus is at their table. Now, you would pick that up if you had read Luke 1 through 7, but I'll just bring you up to speed. Already in this story, in the heart of the Pharisee who gets a name, Simon, there is a double standard. And any time you and I walk and operate out of a double standard, things are not going to end up well at the end. Amen. Simon doesn't view himself through the lens that he superimposes on everybody else. Come on, somebody. Simon doesn't view, the, they don't view themselves with the thing that they're putting on other people. And so here he is reclining, eating, and sharing a meal with the Pharisees. And a woman in that city, someone say, a woman in that city who was a sinner learned that Jesus was at the Pharisee's house. Now, a little bit of Bible commentary and study in the passage, you realize that Jesus' culture is not like ours. We have special keypads that open our secure gates with fences. And if you have a really nice neighborhood, you have an intercom that you can call the person's house and tell them to let you in. We have locks, two or three of them sometimes, on our front door. In Jesus' day and age, it was a lot more open. So the fact that this woman is breaking up the Pharisees' dinner party is not that outlandish, but her activity and action in light of knowing where Jesus was is where the aha comes. This was an open space where the poor and the onlooker and the bystander could come and ask for food if they needed food. And so Luke goes out of his way constantly to show the role of those whom the religious view as outsiders finding their way to Jesus. And this woman came with her reputation that preceded her. How many have a past like that? And she didn't let her past get into the present moment of getting to Jesus' feet. It would seem that she came with an intention which was to lavish this ointment upon Jesus. How many know it's okay to have good intentions? But sometimes you meet grace face to face and your intentions don't pan out like you thought they would. And so some commentators think that as she was on the way to anoint, she broke down. Thus the tears and the, the mess. And I tried to find a good clip on YouTube, but they're so awkward. This is an, let's just, can I just say that this is an, a crazy awkward story. There's no way to tame down the audacity of this woman in this story. I, mean, I don't know how you cry. <laughs> 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 
You know how I cry. Not fair. But here's a woman with the intention to anoint the feet. And when she gets into the presence of love, change of plans. And so she begins to weep. And though this woman in her culture and women in general in the first century were viewed as less than or those that belong at the fringes, she did not let any cultural or social or Levitical or cleanliness rule or barrier get in the way of her and Jesus. And so what you see in the gospel story, like the story we're reading right now, Jesus is like a love magnet. To sinners, he's irresistible, but to the religious, he is repulsive. You see the contrast here of our story. And when the Pharisee who invited Jesus saw what was happening, he began to have an inner dialogue, which is always dangerous to do in the presence of Jesus because he knows our thoughts. It's not fair. None of this is recorded that he said it out loud. It said he said it to himself in verse 39. And the problem with being a Pharisee and not living in the awareness of your desperate need before the Lord is there's never an end to the category or the people that you judge. You notice the sequence of judgment that unfolds in this passage. Who is the first one to be judged? The woman. Who is now on the judge chopping block in the eyes of Simon? The judgment was lobbied against the woman first, but now Simon thinks he is the one who is the fit one to judge Jesus himself. If he was a prophet, he would know. And Jesus, like in our scripture from a few weeks ago, he sees right through our duplicity, He sees right through our facades of put-togetherness. He sees right through our pathetic attempts of propping ourselves up in our own deeds and works, and he sees right through it. And so Jesus, it seems, almost interrupts this man's train of thought, and he startles him, and he says, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. When we judge others based solely on the outer appearance, seldom will we make an accurate judgment. Do you see that from this passage? If all that we allow to influence our choices and our judgment of people is the outward facade, we will seldom get it right. I mean, just look at the person next to you. And here's why we will seldom get it right and why Simon found himself on the wrong end of judgment. 
is because we always overestimate someone's bondage and brokenness and underestimate that they've been made in the image of God. We always overestimate the distance and the link that's between them and God because of their filthiness, their sin, their addictions, their habits, their outward appearance. We overestimate the, the reality of their sin and we always underestimate how short the gap really is between them and Jesus. We always underestimate that buried beneath the rubble of sin, buried beneath the rubble of bondage, buried beneath the rubble of addiction, there is something that is still there and it's called the image of God. There is no one that you and I could judge that is an unfit candidate for the love and mercy of Jesus Christ. Buried beneath, however great the, the addiction, buried beneath, however great the sin for this woman, many think she was a prostitute, many commentators. Behind the sin, there is a greater reality that pulls at the grace and love of God, and it's that you are made in my image. And I've come to destroy the devil's work, which was to mar that image and to institute and reinstitute the transforming power of my spirit. And it's so significant that when Jesus interrupts this man's thoughts, he doesn't give him a 25-point sermon on why he's wrong. He tells him a story. Isn't that good? I love that Jesus is so, he's so transcendent and holy and mighty, but he's so imminent, he's so close, he's so personable, he's so approachable. He tells a story about a moneylender. And the story is pretty obvious about who's going to love more, is it not? But how many know whether you think you only owe 50 or if you're here today under the weight of your sin, you think I owe more than 500. I want you to know that he forgives both. He doesn't give a stark, stoic, static, black and white, right, wrong. He tells them a story that illustrates the outlandish character of his grace and mercy in his kingdom. A story that you and I find ourselves in. Does anyone have any debt? If someone came and took care of the note that you owed on your house, would you be pretty happy? Come on out, sir. Just kidding. What if, what if there was somebody that... Well, way more so than the, the reality of the house that you live in, the, the Lord and his pardon. And so he gives him a story. And the point of the story is to illustrate over and over again, God's love has no match. Simon answers the, the question, who do you suppose will love me more in light of this parable I've just told you? Simon treads gently because he's 0 for 2 so far in judgment. <laughs> if he knew who this woman was, he judged the woman, done really good at that. And he moved on from the woman to Jesus if he was a prophet. And, and then Jesus read his mail, understood his thoughts, so he missed that one. 
And so his response is tender-footed towards, I suppose, the one who had the greater debt canceled. And Jesus said, this is such ironic. Look at, how does Jesus answer him? You have judged correctly. It's almost as if to say in this story, this vision of kingdom hospitality and the welcoming, wooing presence of Jesus, it's almost as if Jesus is like, finally, Simon, you judged rightly. You misjudged the woman. You thought she belonged out there. Nope. Her and all of those that she represents belong right here close next to me. You've judged what prophets in my kingdom look like. They're not those who have white shiny robes and big shiny cars and big shiny houses away from the muck and the mire of humanity's mess. No, 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 no. You've misunderstood the whole concept of holiness. The way holiness works in the kingdom is what is inside of you affects what is outside of you, not the other way around. But Simon finally judged something right. He's been sitting in judgment this entire meal. And I want you to know that if you're perpetually in judgment mode, you're not in worshiping mode. And worship is what moves and it moves the heart of God and what transforms you from the inside out. The only problem is the only person Simon never got around to judging in this story was himself. And I want you to know there is one who sees through all of our efforts, attitudes, good works, bad works. He sees right to our hearts. So the quicker we get to the reality of just exposing who we are before him, the quicker his grace and healing love can come flooding in. Jesus forgave in the parable that he told the one who owed 50 and the one who owed 500. So it doesn't matter what your story is like. The point is you need a savior in that story and it's not you. And it's not me. This man could use a healthy dose of self-reflection and humble acknowledgement that he is not as put together as he appears on the outside. This man could use, frankly, a little bit of a healthy dose of what he's dishing out on other people. And it might be said that many of us are bound to a more heinous but undetectable from the outside sin, and it's the sin of self-sufficiency. I'm good. Anyone ever say that? I'm good. No, I mean, I'm good. Thank you very much. You see, this man had lost sight of the whole purpose of being a part of the family of God. It is not a competition, but an invitation to extend the same love that we've received to every person around us at the table. And then Jesus turns to the object that has been judged and misused and abused undoubtedly, the woman. And he takes the one who was the object of judgment and turns her into the object to follow, her example. He takes her from an object of judgment and 
from the one that no one wanted to be associated with except for in secret. And he lifts her up and puts her in the spotlight of God's love and says, now this is, you see, only God's love and grace could do that, beloved. And he said, do you see this woman? And it's almost as if Jesus forgot that everyone's seen the woman. (laughs) So I don't think Jesus can mean in verse 44, do you actually see her? I think he's saying, Simon, when are you going to let me give you a new pair of lenses through which you view everything different in light of who I am? Simon, do you see? I'm not saying do you have 20-20 or 20-whatever. I'm saying, do you see from a heart that realizes how desperate you are and the reality that if I can do it in you, I can do it in anybody? Do you see through those lenses? Or are you going to just see through your own eyes of judgment? You see, when I entered your house, even though you were the one who invited me, Simon, she's the one who welcomed me. See, many of us invite Jesus into our thing and we want to be associated, but listen, he's not just interested in being invited, he wants to be welcomed into your thing. You invited me, Simon, but the woman that was not invited is the one who turned into the host of my presence. She's bathed my feet with tears and dried them with her hair. I don't have time to talk about the hair and and Jewish culture. It was the woman's glory. In other words, she's saying, I don't care whatever is considered my glory. It is only fit to be lavished. And she trades her glory for the glory that she's found at the feet of Jesus. She goes lower than a slave who would just use a regular towel and a basin, and she uses her own hair as his towel. She goes lower, wiping his filthy, dirt-cladded feet. And then she takes an ointment that, in some accounts of the gospel, may have been worth an entire year's wages. And she says, it's perfect for the feet of Jesus. So she spares no expense She doesn't care what others think around her or about her. She says, nothing, no barrier that that has been erected in my life is going to get between me and Jesus. So she just goes lower. And could it be, church, that many of us feel like Jesus is elusive because we think We can come to him with all of our stuff all together. I want you to know maybe if we came a little bit lower, we might get there a little bit faster. Humbled. We don't come like the rich ruler thinking of all the list of things we've done to accumulate the affection and love of God. We come as a poor child realizing we have nothing unless the Father gives it to us. Not my works, not my effort. You gave me no kiss, verse 45, but she just won't stop kissing my feet. She doesn't view herself as an equal of Jesus. That's why she doesn't kiss his face, which was a very normal sign of greeting. She, she just keeps going lower. She makes a mess of the Pharisee's party. Verse 47 Therefore, I tell you, her sins, look at this, which were many, have been 
forgiven. That's what her great love shows. And I want you to know that um, she did not earn Jesus' forgiveness through her tears or through her lavish offering of the jar or the oil. She received forgiveness because she was at the feet of the one who is forgiveness, the one who is love, 1 John. I'm not going to go there. She's forgiven because she put her faith in the only one who never sinned and who therefore is the only one fit to release the pardon and grace and forgiveness of God. She is forgiven not because of what she brought to the party or what she left at home. She is forgiven because she has connected her broken reality to the hope-filled reality that God in Christ is not counting sins of humanity against us any longer, but he's coming to bear our sins so that he can release forgiveness and renewal and pardon once and for all. And he says, her great love is just evidence of the great work that I've done in her. And then he said to her, almost to affirm what has already happened on the inside, your sins are forgiven. Jesus' whole life And ministry bears witness to this one incredible declaration. God forgives sinners. God forgives those who could never, ever, ever pay for what they've done. If you, Lord, Psalm 130, verse 3, kept a record of sins, who could stand? Help me out with the answer there. But with you, say that with me, but with you, there is forgiveness. This incredible story, like so many throughout Luke's gospel, has those who thought they were on the inside, the self-proclaimed insiders, finding themselves on the outside. And those on the outside, culturally, religiously, socially, because of the upside-down reality that God and Christ came to institute in the world, find themselves close to the center. This is the scandal of God's amazing love. He doesn't want us because of our track record. He doesn't call us because we're deserving. He draws us because he knows we need him and he can't wait to lavish all that he is on our lives. In the kingdom of God, the outsiders are welcomed into the table of God. And he said to the woman, And he says to us here this morning, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And that word saved is a fancy word in the original language. It does not just mean she prayed a prayer. She's going to get to go to heaven in like 80 years or 40 years That word literally means to be made whole, spirit, soul, mind, and body. Yes, Yes, heaven is your future if you're in Christ, but I want you to know he wants to make you whole 
and to heal you right here and right now. Socially, relationally, emotionally, he wants to save you. And the only way he can do that is if you put your faith in him. Period. So a couple questions that can stir us up this week as we go in a minute. Would you or I recognize the sinful woman in our neighborhood? Do you see her? Do you recognize him or her? Would we be able to see what's really going on in the hearts and minds and lives of those around us that are bound and broken by their choices and their sin? Will we stay postured above them in judgment and at arm's distance, or will we take our cue from Jesus and realize there is no distance any longer? Jesus has crossed it once and for all. So we can just welcome to the table. What if we had open tables like Simon, where those in our homes or workplaces or neighborhoods knew they could come and find forgiveness, where the bound and broken would become the faith-filled and the freed because of the love of Jesus Christ. Do we see through the lens of compassion and mercy or through the lens of condemnation and competition. Jesus invites us, church, into a totally different story. The story of his love and his forgiveness. I don't know where you're at this morning, but to revisit our thesis, there is no barrier that you could build that can stop the life-altering reality of the love of Jesus. There is no sin that you carry. There's no secret that is eating you alive that the love and grace of Jesus cannot heal. There is... Nothing, nothing from his perspective that can overcome, if you'll just surrender and trust, the grace that pardons you as a sinner, that adopts you as a son or daughter, and that empowers you to live an entirely different life. There's nothing. 